Welcome to A Portrait of Jesus with Dr. Bill Creasy. Tens of thousands of you have already listened to Dr. Creasy's one-year Bible, 76 five-star lessons that take you through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Now Dr. C drills down and uncovers the most important person in Scripture, Jesus. With his characteristic wisdom and wit, Dr. Creasy introduces you to Jesus, not simply as a figure in the Bible or someone you meet in church, but as a living and breathing person, perhaps the most significant person who ever lived. You're going to love this series, and it's free for our listeners. So welcome back to A Portrait of Jesus. Last week, our first week together, in the first hour, we explored why Jesus came into this world to begin with. We went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and we saw the creation was good and complete and perfect. And Adam and Eve and God spent time together in the prelapsarian Garden of Eden before the fall, and they had a wonderful time. They had an intimate relationship. And can you imagine walking with God in a perfect environment, this beautiful garden, with the woman or the man you love and God, and you're chatting together and talking about the day, and God puts his arm around you, and you're, what a time that would be. It was perfect, it was intimate, it was lovely. And then in Genesis chapter three, it all went bad. Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, they walked away, and sin entered the world. And we defined sin not as an act that we commit, but a condition that we're in, a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. In other words, had I been in a right relationship with God, I wouldn't have held up the 7-Eleven, right? The sin is symptomatic of the condition. The action is symptomatic of the condition. So what's God going to do? By the time we got to Genesis chapter 6 at verse 5, we read, all, th all the thoughts of all people were only evil all the time. And we're only three chapters in. All the thoughts of all people were only evil all the time. So God brought the flood, a great blessing. He washed the board clean, gave humanity a second chance. Noah got off the ark, planted a vineyard, got drunk, cursed his sons, and by Genesis chapter 11, we're at the Tower of Babel. It happened all over again. So now what? I said last week, if I were God, I would have just snuffed out this whole world and everything in it and started over somewhere else. Clean slate. But God didn't. God chose a totally anonymous, unknown, unimportant person, Abram, later his name will be Abraham, from Ur of the Chaldeans, southern Iraq of today, right near the Persian Gulf. And he made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, through you, all people on earth will be blessed. And Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who become the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they grow into a nation. God didn't choose the Jews. There were no Jews to choose. He built the Jews, beginning with Abraham. And he made a covenant with them that through them, all people on earth would be blessed. And if we read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis straight through Esther, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It is a straight chronological line in time. 
And at the end of Esther, what lesson do we learn from what we've read? 25 words or less? If you do what God says, all will go well. If you don't, it won't. And then you turn the page to Job. Job did everything God wanted. And his life was a train wreck. Job is set during the time of Abraham. So Job calls into question the very lesson that we learn. An important thing to ponder. Job, a, a spectacular book. It calls into question the basic lesson. Because we know that if you do everything God wants you to do, everything won't necessarily go well. We need to think about that. But after Job, we have the Psalms, 73 of which are attributed to David. We have a recapitulation in our story back to the time of David. Then we go to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, attributed to Solomon. That's all the recapitulation back into that linear narrative. And then we have the prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the 12 minor prophets, all of whom are operating during the time of the kings. It's all the recapitulation back. So that whole preparation in the Christian canon, the way the books are laid out, it's a linear narrative. And it's leading to something. And we found what it was leading to last week in Matthew chapter 1 when we read a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And we began with Abraham and we traced the genealogy right on through to Jesus himself. That laid the groundwork in our number one. So Jesus comes into the world to fulfill the covenant that God made with Abraham and the people that he created from Abraham. He came into the world to take our sin upon himself, to pay the penalty for that sin before a holy and righteous God, to enable us to stand before God as righteous people. He did it on our behalf. That's why he came. And then the second hour, we began with his birth. Well, not with his birth, with the Annunciation to Zachariah and Elizabeth regarding John the Baptist and the Annunciation to Mary. And we found in that story with Mary that she was a young woman, maybe 13 to 15 years old, typically the age when a young girl would marry in those days. And she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. That's not an engagement. That's a binding legal contract. It's way more than an engagement. Typically, two families get together, they work out all the details, uh, monies exchanged, dowries, and so on. It's a contractual arrangement. And they lived in a little town, Nazareth, which is in the Jezreel Valley of Israel, on a finger ridge in the Jezreel Valley, a tiny, no-account little village. Maybe 20 extended families, a couple hundred people. How many grew up in a little town? Did everybody know your business? Absolutely, right? And that's where Mary lived. The angel Gabriel came to her and said, made an offer, an offer to be the mother of the Son of God. Can you imagine? And we often think that every little girl thought, oh, maybe I'll be the one. No, they didn't. Gabriel made the offer and Mary betrothed to Joseph. I imagine she thought, she thought how she, her life would be, that she would marry Joseph, 
uh, they would have lots of little kids and a little house with a white picket fence and rose bushes and life would be lovely. She had a vision of what her life would be. She was betrothed. It was all planned. And I'll bet the wedding was even planned. The rabbi in Nazareth, the invitations went out. Everybody was ready. And now she's going to become pregnant by someone other than Joseph. She knew the consequences. And what were they? Back in Deuteronomy, if a virgin pledged to be married to a man is found to be pregnant by someone else, you're to take that someone else and the girl to the town gate and stone them to death. Every little girl knew that. It was beat into your head from the time you were born. She knew that. So she had a choice to make. There's a pregnant pause. <laughs> and she says, be it unto me as you have said. Mary was the first person to say yes to Christ. And that took an enormous amount of faith, and I think an even greater amount of courage, because she knew the consequences. Joseph could very well have accused her and had her stoned to death. And if he didn't do that, everybody in town is going to know that she's pregnant by not Joseph, and she would be a pariah for the rest of her life. And indeed, I think we'll see that happen as our story rolls out. But she said yes, and then she had to tell Joseph, how would you do that? 13, 14, 15 years old? We don't have the conversation, not in scripture, but we can only imagine it. Joseph, we need to talk. It's always a bad thing for a guy to hear when his wife says, we need to talk. <laughs> Trust me, you don't want that to happen. But they do. And she said, I'm pregnant. And can you imagine Joseph? What? And then telling the whole story about the angel Gabriel and Joseph going, yeah, right. Uh -huh. yeah. We read in Matthew, that he had in mind, he, he loved her. He didn't want to stone her to death. And we read in Matthew that he had in mind to divorce her quietly. To break a betrothal required legal action. And imagine the families involved and everybody in Nazareth would know it, everybody. So Mary had to leave, she couldn't stay. And we painted a scene last week of Mary packing up a little blue suitcase and going down off the ridge and across the Jezreel Valley. And where could she go? Where could she go? The only other person who would know anything at all, who would understand, is Elizabeth, her elderly cousin because Elizabeth is part of the plan. And we saw last week that when Zechariah, Gabriel told him the plan, Zechariah was silent for the next six months, unable to speak. Not as a punishment for disbelief, but to ponder the magnitude of the events. Elizabeth, when she gets back home, goes into seclusion. 
and she ponders all this, the two of them together, and they come to understand. So Mary went to Elizabeth, knocked on the door. Elizabeth answered the door, and the child in her womb, John the Baptist, leapt for joy. And Mary spent three months with Elizabeth until the birth of John. Imagine the conversations around the dinner table. Now that Elizabeth and Zachariah are fully informed of the plan and Mary's there with them, you can only imagine what they talked about. But after the birth of John, after three months of Mary being there, John's born, and Elizabeth said, you need to go back home. I, I can't go home. Joseph is divorcing me. He, he initiated the paperwork, the legal action. And how can I go back? Everybody, everybody knows. I'd be so ashamed and embarrassed and I was put out. You have to go back. And they must have had many hours of conversation about that. And Mary decided to go. She packed up that little blue suitcase again and walked off from Enkerem, which is a village today, maybe six, seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And she went back to Nazareth, about a 90 mile journey for a pregnant teenager, unwed, all by herself, a dangerous journey. But she walked back and she walked up that ridge and as she could see the little village of Nazareth, you know her heart was pounding. Her mouth was dry. She was afraid. She went into the village. Maybe a few people saw her and turned aside. And she came to the house of Joseph, knocked on the door. And that's where I left you last week. Inside was Joseph. He had been watching the Jay Leno monologue and uh, having a glass of wine. And, and he nodded off. He fell asleep. And while he was asleep, the angel Gabriel came to him and filled him in on the whole plan. Joseph woke up. And it, he said, oh my God, I, I had no idea. I, I sent her away. I, I don't even know where she went. What am I going to do? There's the knock. And he went to the door, and he opened the door, and there's Mary standing with a little blue suitcase. <laughs> and <laughs> they all, oh, wouldn't you like to have been there? She went in, they embraced, they wept, and he said, sit down. And she's pregnant, right? She's three months pregnant, everybody can see now, and sit down. And they talked, and I'll bet they talked all night long. And we read in Matthew that he took her as his wife. So the wedding happened, 
And you have to wonder if any guests came. Because everybody knew. Everybody knew. And you know, growing up in a little town, that would be scandalous. I remember I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, in, in the inner city around the steel mills, and went to Oliver High School. And in 10th grade, we had a homeroom, same homeroom every day, and I sat next to a girl, I won't say her name, but um, I, I liked her, she was very nice. We weren't boyfriend and girlfriend or anything, but we, we, we knew each other for, since elementary school, 10th grade. And she came in one morning and she was crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I'm pregnant, 10th grade. This was in what, 1961? Really? The next day she wasn't there. Disappeared. Gone. Never saw her again. Never saw her in the neighborhood. Never saw her at the house. She went, I guess, to a home for unwed mothers and never came back. Now imagine, at the time of Jesus, when you could be stoned to death for that. Well, Joseph marries her, and that's where we start tonight. So I want to go over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Uh, that census was indeed taken, and it was a common thing. We do a census every 10 years here in the U.S., and why do we do that? We need to know how many people we have and where they are so that we can do proper planning. Uh, city planning, financial planning, tax planning, all the things that have to happen. You know, you have to know who the people are, where they live, establish your tax base, and build a budget around that. So every nation has to do that, and the Roman Empire was very good at that kind of administration. So a census was held of the entire Roman Empire. Now we read parenthetically, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That census did in fact take place. I've tracked it all down, and there are records of it. Everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown, his family town. Bethlehem is about maybe four or five miles south of Jerusalem. Today it's a suburb of Jerusalem, and that's where he was from. The whole extended family lived in Bethlehem. So he had to go there to register. Very much like when we go to vote, you have to vote in your precinct, unless you do a mail-in, but you have to vote in your precinct. I'm still registered up in Los Angeles. I didn't move down here until a few years ago, and I'm registered there. So if the election comes along and I haven't changed my precinct, I have to drive up to LA to vote, right? Same thing here. He had to go to his hometown to register for the census. What was he doing up in Nazareth, you have to wonder? Well, if you travel to Israel, how many have been to Israel? Oh, a lot of you. A lot of you with me, I think. And uh, if you travel to Israel, you visit Nazareth, 
and about three miles northwest of Nazareth is a village called uh, Sephora. Uh, and about another three miles northeast is Cana. It's like a triangle. Uh, Sepphoris, not Sephora. Sepphoris was being built right at that time as a really high-end residential place. And it was right in the heart of wine country in Galilee. It was like the Napa Valley. And we visit there often when we travel to Israel. And they were building, massive building going on. This new, it had been a town, but it was destroyed. Then they were rebuilding it brand new. And there was a lot of work there in construction. And what did Joseph do? He was, well, we read carpenter, but literally he was in the building trades. He didn't necessarily work in wood. Most of they worked in stone, but he was in the building trades. And I like to imagine that he relocated up to Nazareth to work on the building projects going on uh, there in that new town. And the people of Cana also worked there, which explains why later on there's a wedding at Cana and Jesus and his mother and brothers are all invited to the wedding. Of course, they all worked together. They had a, a company softball team, I'll bet. So Joseph is up there for work, I think. And, uh, but they had to travel down to, to Bethlehem. So he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. So they travel 90 miles south and Mary is now nine months pregnant, and the Romans had very good roads, 58,000 miles of roads throughout the Roman Empire. If you were traveling around the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Empire is all the landmass surrounding the Mediterranean. It's not just Italy or up in Europe. It's the whole landmass. Half of the Roman Empire is in North Africa. How would you travel around the Roman Empire? Well, you do it by ship. That's easy. You can get on board a ship and go pretty much anywhere in the Mediterranean in a matter of you know, four or five days. And then you would travel into the interior on the Roman roads. The Roman roads were quite good. But if you're nine months pregnant and you're traveling on a donkey cart, that's a little, a little rough. You know, I don't think she'd be walking at nine months pregnant. Probably not riding a donkey for sure. That's like riding a motorcycle with knobby tires on the freeway. But she would have been in a cart, I'll bet sitting on blankets and trying to be made comfortable as a donkey pulled the cart along. But by the time they got to Bethlehem, she was going to give birth. And we read, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I hadn't really thought about this very much, but why did they go to an inn? That's where Joseph's family lives. The whole extended family's in Bethlehem. Think about it. They got to Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph had been together as husband and wife for six months. She was three months pregnant when she went back. Now she's going to give birth. Everybody in Joseph's family knew and it seems to me that they looked for an inn because they weren't welcome by his family. Already, there's a price to pay. 
People were traveling a lot, moving around because of the census. There was nowhere at the local Holiday Inn. So the manager gave them a private place out back. They weren't hotels. They weren't like a Holiday Inn. Uh, they were much like a, 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 a Sarai. Uh, when you're traveling on the Silk Road across Turkey, uh, every 30 miles there'd be a place to stay. That's about the amount you travel during a day. And you would go, it's an enclosed area. You walk in, the gates are open, you go in. There's a courtyard, and that's where the animals would be, and that's where you would sleep at night. You know, you'd have make, get your bed roll out, put your tent up, whatever, and that's where you would sleep. And the owner would provide food and shelter, and if it rained, you went inside, but uh, you were with other people. There might be 20, 30, 40 people staying there if the traffic was heavy, and she's going to give birth. There's no room inside, so I think the innkeeper was very kind and said, we need to deal with this. You don't want to give birth in front of 30 or 40 other people. So I have out back a stable that's clean, dry, and you're welcome to use that. And I'll bet the innkeeper's wife was the midwife. And the baby was born right there and placed in a manger. And we always have, uh, you know, Christmas we have the, the crash and but a manger. Think, think of your high school French, manger, what's that word? To eat. It's a feeding trough for animals. So they put hay in the feeding trough, maybe a little blanket over it, and that's where they put him. Now, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, as angels always do, fear not. They were terrified. Shepherds out in the fields. When you drive from Jerusalem south into Bethlehem, you're on the ridge of a, a mountain area. And when you drive in, you get a little bit into town. And off on the right-hand side, you can look down and you see shepherds' fields. That's where the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks, shepherd's fields. It's also where the story of Ruth takes place, right down there in the fields. It used to be when we would travel to, uh, to Israel and I'd take our group to Bethlehem, that we would drive the bus, that was before all the, the wall and all the security and everything, we'd drive the bus around through shepherd's fields and go up over the, over the hill. And we'd be driving along and, and I'd say, how about we have a song? away in a manger. We're all singing in the bus, right? And the bus comes around a bend, and here's a little boy with a lamb over his shoulders. Oh, stop the bus, take pictures. And we all got off, and we got to pat the lamb, and, and uh, oh, that was, that was so fortuitous. Some of you experienced that. And, uh, and then we get back on the bus, and we go up to Bethlehem. Little did they know the boy's on my payroll, right? <laughs> but it, it was a moment, it was a moment. But uh, there, there they are, the shepherds out in the field. Shepherds are the lowest of the low. If, if you have, you can think of the, the, the worst job you can possibly have is a shepherd watching over the sheep at night, right? It, it, it's dangerous. 
Uh, it doesn't pay well, you're cold, you're hungry, and you're sleeping with a bunch of sheep. So it's not something that you strive for in your career. It's really the bottom of the pile. But there are the shepherds, and they're told about what happened. The angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. The Messiah, the one talked about by the prophets, the one who would fulfill God's covenant with Abraham, the one who would redeem humanity, the one who would be king of kings and lord of lords. He's born. I'm teaching Isaiah right now on Mondays and Tuesdays in four different places, and we're, we're talking about this very thing in Isaiah this coming week. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Well, that shouldn't be too hard to spot. Bethlehem's not a very big town. And they went up to look. And sure enough, they found him. But before they did, imagine. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men whom he, on whom his favor rests. And when the angels vanished, the shepherds said, We need to go check this out. So they went up to Bethlehem. They went up the hill, right up to Bethlehem. And sure enough, they found they went to the inn, and uh, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby. They hurried off, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now think how she must have felt coming into Bethlehem with Joseph nine months pregnant, knowing she's going to give birth, like, really soon. Did Joseph go to his family home and knock on the door? Did they open the door, see the two of them, and close the door? They were rejected. Mary had to feel terrible. And now, she gathered up all of this and pondered it in her heart. That word ponder is symbolion. It's a Greek word. It means balo, the verb balo, is to throw. It's a very turbulent word. It's not a gentle word. It's very turbulent. I think she gathered up all of this in her heart and struggled with it. Struggled with it. The shepherds returned, giving, uh, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were exactly as they had been told. Well, in verse 21 of Luke 2, on the eighth day after Jesus' birth, when it was time to circumcise him, God gave Abraham circumcision as a sign of the covenant over in Genesis. Circumcision is to a Jew what baptism is to a Christian. It incorporates the person into the covenant community. So on the eighth day, every boy on the eighth day would be circumcised. So on the eighth day, 
He was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem, just three, four, or five miles north, to present him to the Lord as it's written in Scripture. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That's over in Leviticus. So he's consecrated on the 40th day after his birth. If the child is a girl, she's consecrated on the 80th day after birth, twice the amount of a boy. Why would that be? I've taught Leviticus many times, and this last time really went in depth in Leviticus. It was a thrilling class, I can tell you. Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> it was. But I, I think with a, a, a mother and a son, that's a unique relationship. I have two sons. They had a unique relationship with their mother before she passed away, and even afterward. But uh, with a girl, a mother and a daughter, I don't have a daughter. I'm the oldest of three boys. I have all boys. My brothers have all boys. We have no girl genes. I know nothing about girls. Ask Anna, absolutely nothing. She said, did you grow up in a locker room? Well, yeah, more or less. You know? uh, but I can only imagine what it would be like to have a daughter and the relationship between a mother and a daughter. And I think God gave a gift for that. That little child spends 80 days with her mother, not 40, before she's consecrated. They have that private time together, just the two of them, before the consecration. I, I rather like that idea. So Jesus is consecrated. Now, at the time, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He knew, he knew the prophets. He knew all the prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, and he knew Daniel. The book of Daniel, chapter 9, that dates the coming of the Messiah. He knew. He knew all about that. And he was waiting. And he thought to himself, Daniel tells us that the Messiah will be born. Well, the Messiah will enter into his ministry, as it were, at about 30 years old, which means he'll be born at about this time, give or take, say, a year. And if I come to the temple every day, and I go to the office, and I look at the schedule, what consecrations are going on today, I'll see him. I'll I know his family will be a devout family. I know they'll bring him here. And when I see them, I know I'll recognize him. So I'll bet he came every day, checked that schedule, and just stood around when a consecration was going on, looked at the baby, looked at the mother and father. And then one day, in walked Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And how did Simeon recognize them? They all had halos, right? No. <laughs> uh, he did. He recognized them. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, the consecration, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God. So Simeon said, could I hold him? 
and Mary handed him to Simeon. And Simeon took that little child, looked in his face, and he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. Now I can die. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Isaiah said in chapter 49 of Isaiah, it's not enough to restore Israel. You, Israel, will be a light to the nations. It's not enough that God redeem his people, his chosen people. He will redeem the entire human family. And Simeon recognized it, a light for the Gentiles. And he's looking into that baby's face. He's the one promised ever since Genesis chapter 12. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. A sign spoken against? And then he said, and a sword will pierce your soul too. This little boy will break your heart. And he hands him back. Now, what could Mary think about that? And does that happen? I don't think, I said this last week, but I don't think ever in the worst nightmare Mary ever had that she would envision standing at the foot of a cross with her son nailed to it, beaten to a bloody pulp and nailed to a cross. She stood at the foot of it. His blood dripped onto her. Can you imagine as a mother? Seeing that? Seeing the scourging that took place? My wife Anna and I watched uh, during Lent uh, in Holy Week, we watched uh, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Hadn't seen that since it came out. Brutal, absolutely brutal, especially the scourging. And imagine, as a mother, you're there watching that happen to your son, knowing who he is and a sword will pierce your soul, too. Now, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. She was a church lady. <laughs> she was there every day. And she knew the prophecies too. And if Simeon was there every day and Anna was there every day, you know they talked. The two old folks, the two church people were there. And she came up, she saw this, and she came up to them at the very moment and gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew 
and became strong and was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. So we don't have the story here in Luke of what happens in Matthew about the Magi and the flight to Egypt. But let me turn back to it. We'll just pick that up. So they go back to Bethlehem from Jerusalem and they spend a little more time there and then something happens. Let me get right to it in Matthew chapter 2. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of Herod, King Herod the Great, Magi, and the Greek word is Magi, came from the east to Jerusalem. And they asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So these three wise men, Magi, Magi actually, it can mean magicians, it can mean wise men. Uh, these were people from the east. And where would that have been? Over in Persia, the Tigris-Euphrates area, Persia, Iraq, over there. And they saw a star in the east, right? If you're living in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and you look west, they saw the star from the east. The star wasn't in the east, they were in the east. So they saw the star from the east and it was an unusual experience. And they read the prophecies. We read in Ezra, the book of Ezra, that Cyrus the great king of Persia, who defeated the Babylonian Empire in 539 BC, we read in Ezra that Cyrus had read the prophecy of Isaiah and knew the prophecy. And he is the one who allowed the people taken captive by Assyria and Babylon to go home, rebuild their cities and towns, their temples, their infrastructure, all, not just the Jews, everybody in the Middle East who had been taken captive by Assyria or Babylon, go home, rebuild, and he would pay the bill. It was a gigantic Marshall Plan to rebuild the Middle East, and it worked. But we read in Isaiah chapter 44 that he had read, th he had read this in Isaiah the prophet. And that's what triggered him doing this. So people in the east, Tigris Euphrates area, were familiar with the prophet, like Cyrus was. And apparently these men were too. And they followed the star. And they came to Bethlehem. Now how long would it take to get there? You travel about, oh, men traveling about 30 miles a day. And when Ezra returns from Babylon, to Jerusalem, it takes about a month for him to get there in the book of Ezra. So it would have taken them a good month to get there. So they're not there with the shepherds, like in the manger scene. They come a little bit later. And here they are, they arrive. Now when King Herod, Herod the Great, who reigned from 37 BC to 4 BC, when he heard about this, he was very disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, asked about where this Messiah uh, was to be born, they said in Bethlehem, in Judea, this is what the prophet had written, the prophet Micah, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come the ruler 
who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Herod the Great, he was great as a builder. He built fabulous things. He built at Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean coast, the major deep water port at the time of Jesus, prior to the time, right, the generation before, was Tyre up in Lebanon of today. So all the maritime traffic coming in, moving in the Mediterranean in the Roman Empire, coming to the east, would put into port at Tyre or Joppa further south in Israel. Joppa was a very old port. Tyre was a much better port. So what did Herod do? He built a deep water port midway between the two at Caesarea Maritima. When we travel to Israel, it's, it, we visit Caesarea Maritima, and a lot of scenes take place in the Bible there, in, in, in the Gospels. And we visit. It's an artificial deep water port. It's shallow water. And there's a south to north longshore current that flows because the Nile River empties into the Mediterranean and pushes north. So if you dredge out a harbor at Caesarea Maritima, about two weeks later, it's going to fill up again. So he had to build a breakwater by having concrete hardened in the water. He invented the way to do it. And he built that artificial deep water port and cut off Tyre and Joppa. So all the traffic came into the new port. And why did he do that? Because he'd make a whole ton of money from that enterprise. And the taxes would go to Rome, and he was a vassal king appointed by Caesar in Rome. He sent the money to Rome. He built the temple platform in Jerusalem, the size of five football fields. And the temple stood on it. Why build that big platform? Because three times a year at Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, all Jews who could would come to, Bethlehem, uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate as one people. The normal population of Jerusalem was about 100,000. At the festivals, it was upwards of a million. All these people have to buy food, have to stay somewhere, spend money on souvenirs. It's like having an NFL franchise. Every weekend during football season, all these people come, and you even have the Super Bowl there. It generates a ton of tax revenue, and that's why he did all these building projects, Herod the Great. But he was a miserable human being. He murdered some of his own sons that he felt were a threat to his throne. Herod the Great. They discovered his tomb at uh, Herodium, a fortress that he built outside of Bethlehem, and his sarcophagus, it was all smashed up, but the sarcophagus has been reassembled and recently went on exhibit at the Israel Museum. Herod the Great. You know, all these people called the Great, Alexander the Great, Herod the Great. What do they all have in common? They're all dead, right? <laughs> but Herod, he didn't want any competition. And he heard about this Messiah being born, and he wanted to put a stop to all of it. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go and worship him. Right. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until they stopped. it stopped over the place where the child was. 
And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Valuable gifts. And having been warned in a dream, I'll bet by the angel Gabriel, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by a different route. So the Magi come, the three kings, the three wise men, Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar, traditional names for them, and uh, they're buried, their tomb is in Cologne. And in Chaucer's Wife of Bath tale, she visits the three kings' tombs in Cologne. I think that's really fabulous. After this portrait of Jesus, we should do the Canterbury Tales. Well, <laughs> so they go back and they left gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. There's Gabriel again. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So get up, go to Egypt. So they would have left Bethlehem, gone down the road to the coast of Joppa, and then followed along through Gaza and on down into Egypt. Egypt, a sanctuary. You know, we think of Egypt, oh, they enslaved the Jews and all those terrible things. Joseph was prime minister of Egypt, the grand vizier, second only to Pharaoh. And Jacob and the boys came down and they stayed with him, 72 people in all. After Joseph died, they stayed. They were given land in the land of Goshen. That's the northeastern portion of the Nile Delta. Very fertile land. And there they grew. And over 400 years, they increased from 72 people to around 2 million. That's, it doesn't seem like that many. It's not a particularly big increase. If the average family had seven or eight children, which they did in those days, then you would get to two million people pretty quickly. You know, just run it on out as an actuarial and uh, you'll see. But they got to be a lot of people. And here they were in the land of Goshen, northwestern portion of the Nile Delta. The major international trade route, the Via Maris, Via Way Maris the Sea, the Way of the Sea, came out of Egypt right up the coast, all the way up to Lebanon, and it got up oh, right to Megiddo, across the Jezreel Valley, around Capernaum, where Jesus lived, and then on up uh, to Damascus. Uh, it ended up there. King's Highway went through the Eastern Mountain Range, and they joined. The two major international trade routes. So if you have two million people who aren't Egyptian, although they've been there for 400 years, and they were kind of Egyptian, but you had those people living there, and enemies invaded from the north. That's where they come from, always. Nobody's coming from the desert. They're coming from the north. And they encounter these people. Who do you think these people, if they feel outsiders, uh, they feel marginalized in some way, who are they going to support? Probably the invaders. So they're a threat. That's why they're put into slavery. Not by the Egyptians, but by the Hyksos, who had invaded Egypt. But Egypt had always been a sanctuary for Abraham, for Jacob, for Joseph, for Jacob and the boys, and now for Jesus. They make a flight to Egypt. 
When my youngest son, Jonathan, was in first grade, both of my sons growing up, I've been, I've been leading tours since 1992, uh, usually four a year. Uh, the Israel trip coming up in October during our class will be my 61st trip to Israel. And uh, so I took my two boys with me on all the, to all the places we go at least once. And I took Jonathan to uh, uh, Egypt when he was about kindergarten, first grade. And, and we had a fine time, uh, fine time there in uh, Israel. And we were there in Israel together. And I took him to Egypt and we rode a camel together. It was a lot of fun. But uh, he got back to school and, and it was right about Christmas. And he was, uh, they, they did little projects for Christmas and they were to draw a picture of the Holy Family, right? He went to a parochial school in, up in Westwood. And so he drew a picture and he turned it in and the teacher said, what, what's, why did you draw an airplane? <laughs> and he said, and, and there, uh, there was the airplane and, and it had the little windows on it and he said, well, it's the flight to Egypt. <laughs> he said, there's Joseph, there's Mary, there's Jesus. And up in the front is Pontius the pilot. <laughs> so, they go to Egypt. And they stay in Egypt for a while until everything cools off uh, with Herod. Until Herod dies. And uh, then they go back. But how... They were poor people. How do we know that? Because at the consecration, we read in Leviticus, when you consecrate a son, you're to offer a bull, a lamb, or a goat. A bull's the most expensive, a lamb next, a goat next. And if you can't afford any of that, you can offer two doves or two pigeons. Anybody can catch those at a, with a shoebox and a, a stick and some peanut butter. It's the, the offering of the poor. And that's what Joseph and Mary did. They offered two young doves. They were poor people. So how they afford to go to Egypt for a couple of years? Oh, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Right? The Magi funded the trip. I like that. Well, after a while, Herod died, Joseph was told, and they head back, not to Bethlehem, but right on up to Nazareth. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson. It's our gift to you. And be sure to check out Dr. Creasy on LogosBibleStudy.com for a treasure trove of truly in-depth teaching verse by verse through the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation. 